0: Hello and welcome, my name is Connie Baker and I am a licensed professional counselor here in the Portland area. I also happen to be a wife and a mom, a friend, a reader, a moviegoer, an advocate for the marginalized in our churches and our culture. I'm just thrilled you're here. We're going to talk today about the very touchy topic of religious or spiritual abuse. I use those words interchangeably. Some people don't, but I do, just so you know. And I want to welcome who I'm visualizing, just looking out at you right now, uh, visualizing that, and who's here with me? I think some of you may just be curious about the topic, and I love that. I love people who just want to be educated. So welcome to you, then I think of those who say, I'm tuning in to this seminar because I want to help others who've been traumatized by the church. i got people close to me who are bleeding, who are hurting. I want to help them. So I, oh, so much want to welcome you to the seminar. My heart today is especially with those of you who are coming and listening to this, who are struggling with your own trauma that has happened While you've been in the church, I am speaking honestly, directly to you today. So I want to welcome all of you. Uh, I do wish you were right here in front of me so I could look you in the eyes and talk. And almost more than that, I wish you were here in a room so you could see others that you're not alone, and you could watch them nod, you could watch them gasp at the same things you're, you know, you're going to react to, um, but I believe this format is very effective and in some ways probably can reach more pre- people because it's more private. My story is why I am so passionate about speaking on this topic. This topic of religious abuse is not theoretical to me. It is deeply personal, deeply real, and experienced by me. I'm going to read my story here, um, partly because I tend to go on rabbit trails if I just tell it. (laughs) So I'm going to read you my story. And uh, so just sit back for a minute and take the story in. I laid completely alone on the floor of the church basement, shaking uncontrollably, nauseated, curled into a fetal position. I was twenty five years old. I was waiting to hear my verdict from the pastors of my church. I had been sexually abused by one of their team, a powerful pastor, eighteen years older than me, married with several children. He had groomed me and sexually abused me for nine months. He had not he, he told me not to tell anyone or he would shoot himself. He had left the state and no one knew where he was, so I was here waiting to face trial, so to speak. What would they do to me? Would they blame me? Would they protect me? Throw me out? Help me try to heal? Oh, this memory is one of the most vivid from a period of my life full of extremely painful memories. How did this happen? How did a place that should have been safe, a place that had given me a full and happy life, a social network, meaning, purpose, a place of belonging, opportunities for leadership and contribution, how did it become a place full of terror, shame, and abuse? From the time I was 19 until I was 25, I had given this group of pastors a huge amount of trust. I respected them. I had a deep affection for them. I listened to them. They spoke for God. So when I came to them and told my story of sexual abuse, what happened? They blamed me. They viewed it as an affair. They were angry with me and said it and showed it. They said I was a threat to every married woman. They said I needed to leave the church, basically everything I built my life around and everything that was meaningful to me, so that the pastor and his family could heal. They had me stand up in front of the congregation and tell 500 people that it was my fault, that I had been involved in an emotional affair. I stood before the congregation for two services, by the way, feeling completely naked and asked their forgiveness. In the months following, it is hard to describe the extent of my brokenness and confusion. My reputation and identity had been completely shattered. I had no idea who I was anymore. The church elders then told me to leave the church. I was devastated. My whole life had been built there. I grieved the life that I had been forced to leave. I became profoundly depressed and went through severe panic attacks. In the years that followed, I still had no idea what had happened to me. This was in 1990, and nobody was talking about spiritual abuse. It took me three years to realize that I had been sexually abused. The un- the understanding of spiritual abuse took much, much longer. And it was much messier. The following years consisted of fighting for physical and emotional survival, Uh, individual counseling, group counseling, and finally beginning to heal. I realized that in the overall impact of what had happened to me, the sexual abuse probably accounted for only about 25 percent of the damage done to me. 75 percent of the damage had to do with the way the pastors dealt with it. That is what created the greatest trauma and the most devastating spiritual destruction. Seven years later, I gained the health, strength, and courage to return and talk to the group of pastors about what had happened and its impact on me. I expected nothing from them. I needed nothing from them. I'm glad for that because I didn't get anything. (laughs) I retained a small strand of hope that they would somehow see the truth of the damage they had done. I did not want it repeated with anyone else ever. I was gracious and kind but very direct as I explained the dynamic of sexual abuse and their role in the damage done to me. Here here was their response. One of them said that I was still not taking responsibility for my part. One said he would do it just the same if he had to do it over again. Only one pastor out of about five of them chose to hear and truly understand what had happened. And I left feeling great. <laughs> it was sad, but I was at peace. I had said my truth. I had kept my integrity. I had needed and expecting nothing from them. And it's a good thing I didn't. In the last 28 years, I have married, become a mom, become a mental health therapist, done the roller coaster of major faith shifts, sorted out, sometimes with counseling, the catastrophic damage done to me, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And, listen carefully, I have healed. There is hope. In each of the areas that my life uh, had been damaged or destroyed, goodness, grace, and transformation have truly taken place. I now have the consistent privilege of walking with those whose lives have been injured or broken at some point by spiritual abuse. So that's my story. Um, And I think now you understand why this is a very personal topic and why I want word out. Because it took me so much time to figure out what had happened to me, how to name it, how to describe it, when no one else around me could put words to it. So what, one of the first things I want to do is take a minute to define religious abuse. What is this thing? Or spiritual abuse. Again, call it what, whichever one you want. First of all, the most powerful, uh, the most fundamental, uh, I should say, elements of religious abuse, there are three things. Power, control and manipulation. A lot of times we think of abuse as somebody just being mean or trying to hurt someone. Well, that's a part, that can be a part of abuse. But the more fundamental part of abuse is power, control, and manipulation or some combination of those. Here's my definition, and this is kind of dense but it's on your handout so this is written out. By definition, any abuse consists of some type of power differential where one person has more power than the other and hurts the other person with that power. This is true of spiritual abuse. This power can be perceived or real. This power can be held by one religious person, a small or large group of religious people, or the implicit rules of the whole religious organization. The abusive person or institution has some sort of power that the abused person does not have, and they use that power usually leveraging religious ideas or the idea of God to manipulate, control, hurt, exploit, suppress, silence, or weaken the other person. Boy, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Um, But I feel like that's a really important uh, foundation to build from. And if you uh, are just listening to this, be sure and get the handout because a lot of this is just right there on it. So you can go back and kind of uh, rethink this. So abuse is not just hurting someone. It's not just saying or doing something mean. It's dynamic, specifically has to do with power. So in that definition, we talked a little bit about power differential. And that's a new term to some people. And so I want to look at this in light of religious abuse real quickly. Um, I'm going to give you a list, again on your handout, a list that includes multiple types of power differentials. In my story, um, I think almost 90% of these were in play. Um, Sometimes only a, uh, a small percentage of these power differentials are in play with your story, but they're such a huge power differential that there's still horrible abuse that happens. So different types of power differential include these. One of them, the first one, is power by position or of authority or control. So basically somebody has a position of power. For instance, um, uh, in, in our communities it can be judges, policemen, bosses. In the religious organizations you've got things like uh, pastors, pastors, uh, Mission leaders, Sunday school teachers, elders, uh, board members, so all of these people who carry a structural role of power. So another uh, power differential, type of power differential, is by demographics. So basically, I as For instance, a white straight female have certain things that give me power and certain things that take away power. Um, So let's go down these demographics. Age difference. In our society, age is important. And usually the rule of thumb is the older you get, the more power you have. Unfortunately, in Western society, there's a tilting point where the elderly start losing Their personal power doesn't happen that way in Asian countries. But so age difference will kind of depend. You know, a 45 year old white male is going to have all kinds of power by their demographic. So age difference. Gender. I just said male. And I'm talking mostly the ladies here. And when it comes to male or female, most of us know where the power differential lies. Men usually carry more power. In society, in church, uh, religious institutions. Um, again, these are. And by the way, these are these are bell curve generalizations that usually hold true, but not always. Um, sometimes it, it can shift. Another uh, demographic is uh, financial status. How much money do you have? Another demographic is marital status. I think this is the weirdest thing, people, <laughs> ladies. I think this is weird, but. Married women get more power in the church. And I think I'm going to put an opinion in here for no good reason, but they do. To all you single ladies, I see you, I hear you. So if you a married woman in the church, you often carry more power than um, a single woman. Race. Uh, we're dealing with race right now in a big way, but this has been on the list for mine in a long time. Um, usually white people carry more power. Sexual orientation. No matter where you stand on this theologically, straight people generally have more power. And education, either formal or informal, also tends to give more power. So this is all under the, under the uh, power differentials under demographics. The next part is power differentials, um, the use of physical force, intimidation, or a weapon. Now you think, well, Connie, that doesn't happen in religious circles. Yes, it does. Unfortunately, it does. My story had a weapon involved. Uh, My sexual abuser said he was going to shoot himself. I would not have been as scared if he said he was going to shoot me if I told. Honestly, I was so codependent, I was more worried about him shooting himself. So there can be use of physical force. The next one is a power differential by position of financial, academic, or career control. So, for instance, financial, if you're employed somewhere, a religious institution, and they can control your finances, you know, they can cut off your living, they can fire you. Academic, there's a lot of religious abuse that goes on in academic institutions, everything from preschool to postgraduate. And if somebody says, we're not going to let you graduate unless X, Y, or Z, and that power is used against you inappropriately, that is a form of religious abuse. And career control. We can determine whether you're going to make it in your career or whether we're going to see you fail. So another power differential is by personal presence. I put this as an umbrella because... It's hard to describe sometimes, but we all know the feeling of somebody walking into the room and you just kind of feel like, whoa, they're carrying a lot of power. If they say something, people are going to listen. So that can have to do with physical appearance. It can be with just a powerful personality. It can be about their skill at manipulation. Some people are just good (laughs) at manipulating. Um, It can be just informally influential and in authority. there's certain voices in a church or a religious organization that they may ha- carry no structural authority, but people listen. Um, if somebody has control over your reputation, or control over your social support, they can cut you off from your friends somehow. These are all power by their personal presence. The last power differential is by having it's basically, by giving trust to someone, you give them power. That is not a bad thing. We need to trust each other. We need to learn to trust people who are trustworthy. But when we've given someone trust, we've given them quite a bit of power. So all these can tilt the scales, so to speak, to where one person has more power than another. If you think of my story between the person who sexually abused me and the the church pastoral staff, or elder board, it was the same thing, actually, in that church structure. If you look at those, they, um, almost all of these apply. And so, some of them don't, but a lot of them do. So think through that list in your story. Where, who had more power, and how? All right, well, now that we've covered power differential, and right now, Ladies, we are just laying a foundation for how to even look at this messy topic. So, um, so I'm giving you a lot of background um, grids to kind of see things through. I want to I want to answer the question when we think well, what are the domains of religious abuse? In other words, often when we hear oh they went through religious or spiritual abuse, often it's a sexual. The Catholic Church brought that to light. Protestants, I'm going to say, thought they were all good and saying, oh, shame on the Catholics. Well, now, of course, the last few years, we all knew it was happening in, in Protestant churches as well. But often, religious abuse is a bit like my story, where it has a connection with sexual abuse sexual is only one of six domains that can happen so let's talk about those number one is psychological psychological is really the foundation for all abuse it's somebody using ideas and in religious abuse ideas about god to gain control psychologically then you've got physical where people are physically bullied um where uh Things like not being allowed to leave a room, uh, having transportation taken away from you. These things happen in religious circles, and a lot of people go, oh my gosh, well that sounds really weird and off the charts. I'm going to tell you, after working with hundreds of clients, and honestly, I'm probably up to thousands in terms of just people that I've worked with around religious abuse, the physical is more prevalent than we think, where somebody either gets shoved or bullied somehow physically. The third one is social. This this domain of religious abuse means that I can control your social who you can and cannot have contact with and who can and cannot have contact with you. So this is a powerful just domain. Sexual is the fourth. By by being sexually assaulted by someone in religious leadership, it is a very unique form of both religious and sexual abuse. But as I said before, sexual is only one component of religious abuse. The fifth one is financial. And I could talk about each of these domains for an hour apiece. So I'm just giving you the bird's eye view here. But financially, a lot of people have invested hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars into churches, religious organizations, or cults, where they have just given everything and that ex- financial exploitation is one form of religious abuse. And the last one, and probably the most powerful, that I put under the domains of religious abuse are spiritual. What does this do to your walk with God? What does this do to your image of God when you are power played, controlled, or manipulated by religious leadership? Well, we all know that it's incredibly Damaging. So those domains just show, and usually it's not one, usually it's it's several of those domains. If you've gone through spiritual abuse in a religious organization, it's often a combination of like psychological and social and financial or spiritual. It's a combination. But I want I'm trying to give you a grid here of how to view this, how to look at it and make sense of what you've gone through. I'm going to say this later on, but I'm just going to bring this to you right now. Confusion is a hallmark of religious abuse. It messes with your mind in such a way that you can't make sense of it. And there's a lot of reasons for that, a lot of psychological reasons, but... That's why I'm giving you some hard, cold, informational facts to be able. It's what I do. I've written a book. I'll talk about that later. That's why I wrote my book on religious abuse was to say, here are your grids. Here is how you can look at this and make sense of an extremely confusing, devastating story. So moving on to the next topic, let's talk for a minute about what are the contexts in which religious abuse happens. Well, there are a bunch of them, and I'm going to kind of take a bird's eye view, but most of you listening are going to understand pretty immediately what I'm talking about. Most of us think of religious abuse as happening in a church. Yes, that's number one on my list. Where, where, Where are the contexts? Church is one of them, but it's only one of many. Another one is in families. Oh, some of the stories I hear about God and religious ideas being leveraged to control and manipulate family members are just devastating to hear. So, So that context is families. Another context in which it happens is marriages where one person bullies another one with religious ideas or the idea of God uh, in a marriage. Oh, And honestly, sometimes this connects with domestic violence, uh, physical, psychological, financial, because domestic violence has domains like that as well. So sometimes there's overlap. Another context is church denominations, a bigger structure. If you belong to a denominational church, sometimes uh, uh, religious abuse can happen from the higher-ups in the denomination. It happens in mission agencies. This one, to me, I have a special heart for, as I, I was on the mission field earlier in my life, and missionaries are isolated, and a lot of times without the support they need, and There is religious abuse that happens in mission agencies that can be devastating. Another one that I seem to get a lot of in my office are, it's the context of small groups where religious abuse has happened within small groups and by small group leaders, demanding transparency, um, kind of punishing or shaming people. Oh, man. So small groups is another one. The next one I have on my list is religious organizations in general. Um, you know, things like, I'm thinking of uh, my husband used to work at, at a rescue mission. Uh, so organizations like that, that are nonprofits that are uh, religious organizations, you, you name it. Uh, re- religious abuse can happen in places of employment. Uh, sometimes, like church offices. I used to work Christian retail. That can be a context in which it happens. Um, I mentioned before schools and colleges. Oh my goodness, yes, schools and colleges. Uh, because of the power of presidents of the college and professors and the power differentials involved there, it's very easy. Um, to have spiritual abuse happen then and then the last one I have is a little messier and when I have more time I, I expound upon it but even friendships it can happen in friendships so what I want you to think about that is if you have a friend who you feel like the power is not equal then that's a, a friendship in which it could happen and let me be clear I am As I'm reading these off, I'm thinking, I hope people aren't thinking I'm saying that every single context, this always happens within these contexts. Of course not. There are many of these contexts, these institutions, in which religious abuse does not take place. That's wonderful. But I want you to realize that it can take place in any of these which kind of brings me to, the, to an, our next point, and that's how do we even look at this topic? Most of our minds are geared to think all or nothing, black and white. I have people come up to me and say, Connie, tell me the abusive churches in the area so I can stay away from them. And I always chuckle. Because I'm like, first of all, I'm not going to say which ones I might think tend to be abusive. Uh, That can get me in deep Um, doo-doo. But the issue is, just like humans, all churches and all religious institutions have assets and liabilities. They have strengths and weaknesses. Now, just like some humans who who definitely have a dark side to them, but they're really working on their own transformation and growth and character and spiritual life and emotional life and and, and relational life. You, You get around a person and you know they're a good human. Yes, they're not perfect. Same with churches, but we're all on a spectrum, right? All of us humans are on a spectrum. So in this following discussion that we're going to talk about, remember that everything's on a a spectrum. It's not, yes, it's all like this, or it's all nothing like this. Every church or religious organization is on a spectrum, and every leader is on a spectrum. So keep that in mind as you're thinking about this. At one end of the spectrum, you've got really physically abusive cults, okay? I mean, just the crazy, crazy cult stuff. And then, on the other end of the spectrum, you have what would be considered a pretty healthy religious organization. None of them are perfect. They're going to hurt people. But basically, pretty healthy. And then you've got everything in between. It's all on a continuum. So, that is the foundation. Now, let's transition. Are you guys still with me? Work with me. You're doing great. I am... I am dump trucking a bunch of stuff on you right now. So I'm just backing up the dump truck and I want you guys to be able to go back over this and utilize the handout because I have all these basic, this basic info in the handout. How does this thing start? How does this even begin? Um, This is a question that comes up a lot with the people I work, I work with. And from my experience and my perspective, it starts with God or a religious idea is leveraged to gain power and control. In other words, I'm going to say God to get you to do something I want you to do. And then this control is gained by a claim of infallibility or perfection. So basically, if you're claiming God said, ta-da, 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 and therefore you need to do what I tell you to, because I know what God said, you get how this starts working, right? This claim of infallibility. Now, in, in the circles I have run in, the leaders would never claim to be infallible, They'd be like, oh, no, 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 I'm just a perfect, uh, imperfect, uh, sinful human being. Okay, that's fine. That is explicit. Some, I know some spiritual leaders who say, I, I don't miss what God says. I know all the time what God is saying. Most spiritual leaders are not going to say that. But it can be very implicit. This claim of infallibility or perfection can be ins- implicit. Well, h- how do they do this? They do it by, um, uh, what's the word? They do it by appealing to infallible books. All right. Most of, most of you la- ladies are some form of evangelical. And we're going to hear, the Bible says the Bible says. All right, between you and me, most of us can make the Bible say anything we want it to say, right? I mean, we can grab a a verse and make it do anything, make it jump and hop and do whatever we want to do with it. But, so when a religious leader says the Bible says... Then the, and then if you question that and they say, no, the Bible says, I'm basically speaking for God, then you're setting up a claim of infallibility or perfection. Um, sometimes um, abusive leaders appeal to infallible leaders. And depending on you know, certain cults and certain just religions, even, even evangelicals will say, well, Jesus was perfect. And Jesus said this, so I can't be wrong. And some people talk about infallible institutions. You know, the church for the last two millennia has said this, therefore, basically, it can't be wrong. All right, you guys getting the idea here? This appeal can be implicit. You know, there's all types of abuse in the world, unfortunately, but this is unique to religious abuse. This idea that God or a religious idea is leveraged to gain power and control and the control is gained by a claim of infallibility or perfection. So the leader says, I'm speaking for God because i.e. let's say the Bible says, therefore you have to do what I say or you are disobeying God. That's what that comes down to. This is how it starts. This is kind of the framework that is um, a part of religious abuse. Now, as you're listening to this, I know some of you were like, well, but the Bible does say some things. And, um, well, uh, but how do you even interpret the Bible? And it brings up these issues, and I say, yes, it does. And there are no easy answers for biblical interpretation. That's why we have all these seminaries and all these millennia, people interpreting the Bible in different ways. But what I'm saying is listen for that claim, and often it's an implicit claim of infallibility or perfection. And if it's being leveraged to gain control or power play or manipulate someone, that is the abuse element of that. Alright, our last section, what we want to look at is what does religi- religious abuse actually look like. Uh, we've, we've built a foundation here. We've put up some some frames to the house, so to speak. I'm going to start putting in some walls and we might even do a little decorating. All right, ladies, am I talking your language? Okay. Um, so we've got the foundation, we've got some framework. I'm going to start putting up some walls and fleshing this out. You're going to see some rooms. You're going to see some appliances. You're going to, you're going to see how this thing looks a little bit more. All right. If you're still with me, hold on. We're going to go through this. All right. I'm going to take five major areas that I have chosen. If, again, my book flushes this out in much more detail. Of course, in 45, 50 minutes, I can't give you everything. But I'm giving what I believe are the most salient points of, of the structure of this, of this thing. All right. Religious abuse can look like this. Number one, religious ideas and language are used to gain the compliance of members. Okay, we just mentioned that, right? And people are punished for not complying. So you've got all kinds of examples of things like this. You've got, you better give money to the church because God said so. In, okay, so in really dysfunctional churches, church leadership tracks who gives how much. And in really abusive churches, people get confronted for not giving enough. So, all of a sudden, you're being punished or shamed for not giving money financially to the church. Another example is volunteering for the church. All of a sudden, you think, whew, I need to take a step back. I'm getting really overcommitted here. So you say, you know what? Somebody asks you to do something. You say, you know what? I need to pass this time. And all of a sudden you realize offers for leadership and contribution aren't coming your way anymore. And there's this subtle punishment. Blacklisting started to happen. Um, you, you, you may have heard this expression before, don't touch God's anointed. This is one of the favorite <laughs> uh, expressions of abusive leaders. So, religious ideas and language are used to gain the compliance of members, and people are punished for not complying. All you have to do is say, don't touch God's anointed, and this is quoting a story that has to do with a king, not a pastor, but anyway. Um, and then you know you're going to be punished for stepping out of line. This language and ideas are, are used to gain compliance. and. Within this context, there's often a threat of punishment by God or the leadership for lack of compliance. God's going to withhold his blessing. Boy, that's another big one. Or, you know, the worst of it is you're going to burn in hell. But a lot there's a full spectrum, again, of how this punishment is, is given out. Sometimes it's just shaming people publicly or just. Sometimes there's no just about that. Sometimes it's shaming people publicly or privately. It, it can be subtle where you just kind of get opportunities taken away and the leadership doesn't pursue you as much anymore. Or it can be public, pull somebody up to the front like they did me and basically have them confess all their sins and then kick them out. So so that's number one of what religious abuse looks like. It also looks like being told to not... Oh, I love this one. Ladies, I love this one so much. Being told to not trust yourself or your instinct. Trust the leader or the institution because they are the spiritual or wise one. This gets my hackles up every time I read it, every time I talk about it, because it is so profoundly damaging. Basically override your own questions and concerns um, or and override the harm that's being done to you. Don't trust yourself. Too bad if it hurts. Growth hurts. Oh, there's so many ways this is couched, ladies, that is just so damaging. Don't trust yourself. The heart is deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. So then what happens when we don't trust ourselves? when we don't trust our own experience and reality of saying, this is really harming me, I'm getting really uncomfortable. When we are used to overriding that so consistently because you're trusting the leader to tell you reality... This sets you up for more abuse because then basically your hands are tied. You can't say this hurts. You can't say this is wrong. You can't say I don't like this. You can't say I feel this way because then somebody else says, no, I'm the one to interpret that for you. Don't trust yourself or your good intuition. Don't don't trust that. Trust me because I'm wiser. Oh. Oh my goodness, this is so, so damaging. And for those of you who have gone through this, I just want to say there is a path back. You can learn to trust your own good intuition again. You can do it. I've seen it happen over and over. I was able to do it. I've watched my friends, my clients. Um, There's a path back. The way this ends up, when we don't trust our own intuition and we trust only the leader or the institution, is it ends up in groupthink, where everyone has to think the same way. And that's a huge element of religious abuse, is nobody can step very far outside the given lines. Okay, third thing it looks like. It looks like rigid black and white all-or-nothing categories and language and thinking. Oh, this is one of my favorites, because most of us have pretty strong black and white thinking and Black and white all or nothing categories in our head, and we use those, but in a religious uh, abusive institution, these are huge they you hear them all the time it 's all or nothing you 're all in or you 're all out you 're totally serving the Lord or you 're totally not um, and and some of these things were needed in childhood, never cross the street without an adult that 's an all or nothing statement. But by the time you're 13, we have grayed that out, right? Because the 13-year-old can usually read a stop sign or or a stoplight. So it's not as helpful in adulthood. It's needed in childhood, but this black and white, all-or-nothing thinking is not helpful. It also, this black and white thinking also extends to an us-versus-them mentality, where it's us against the Big bad. Usually in evangelicalism, that looks like it's us against the world, and the world system. Um, We can polarize, and have this whole idea be all or nothing. So, if you're in an institution that consistently polarizes and said it says it's all or nothing, either or, you are either a part of this church or you are not. You either all in, all out. Um, you are either walking with God or you are not. If you hear that language over and over, it—that's—that is one element of what religious abuse can look like. Another thing that can look like is emphasis. Excuse me, emphasis on loyalty and authority. Oh, this is another one of my favorites. There's a demand. For loyalty by abusive leaders in abusive systems. They don't earn loyalty, they demand it. And it's used as a tool to keep people compliant. If you're loyal, you don't argue. If you're loyal, you don't ask questions. If you're loyal, you always support the leader, no matter if he's going or she is going off the rails. So this emphasis on loyalty is really strong. Also authority. I'm not going to name names but back when I was a uh, teenager I went to these huge huge conferences where they talked a lot about a chain of command and a chain of authority and these and I'm not saying that authority is a is a is a bad concept I'm saying that there is a huge emphasis on it in abusive systems They're used for power and control. So constant talk about authority and who's the authority in the home, who's the authority in the church, who's the authority here or there. Um, Take note. This is part of what religious abuse can look like. The last thing on this is it can look, uh, religious abuse can look like living in confusion, guilt, shame, or fear. I'm going to read this again. I'm not going to expound on this, but listen to these four words. If you're living in confusion, guilt, shame, or fear within your religious organization or under your spiritual leader, that's a strong yellow, if not red flag. Uh, uh, These are hallmarks. Of the people that come to see me, after they've gone through religious abuse, confusion, guilt, shame, and fear. Okay, let's step back for a minute. We've built the foundation. We put up some, we put up some boards. We put up some walls. We're we're, getting, we're we're looking now at at a at a basic structure of what can what does religious abuse look like this is kind of depressing am i right (laughs) it's heavy it's hard here i just want you to have three words three words there is hope for those of you who are, are are listening to me saying oh my goodness she's describing the house that i live in she is describing the life that i have led I want you to know there is hope. Ladies, I have the privilege of watching people heal and eventually thrive every day in my office. I've watched my friends, my acquaintances, my clients at an intimate level. I've watched them heal and thrive eventually after going through horrific religious abuse. Spiritual abuse is destructive. And I'm going to say... That how God has created us and the tools he's given us are beautiful healing agents and they can be used. Understanding the dynamics of religious abuse, which is what I've tried to give you today, is the first step toward healing and freedom. Confusion is a central part of any abuse, but especially religious abuse. So understanding and educating yourself is a big first step. Besides this session, I would highly recommend books, websites, safe people who understand these dynamics as resources. Also, eventually, if you know you're stuck for quite a while, therapy. Find someone who gets this. Find someone who can help you sort it out. My three words, there is hope. I want you to hear it loud and clear. I'm standing in front of you, well, sitting here at a desk recording, but still standing in front of you today saying there's hope. It, it, this can be become a part of your story that is integrated and healed. Does, does it leave a scar? You bet it does, but it does not have to be an open wound. As we wrap up, I wanna ask you two questions. Number one, in light of this discussion, what has been your experience with religious abuse? Take all these factors and start checking them off and start start writing about them, start talking about them. What have been, what's been your experience? Number two, who might you know that has gone through significant pain in the church that you could help encourage with this information? Maybe that's yourself. But maybe that's somebody else. I want to let you know how you can reach me. Uh, again, I'm Connie Baker, and my website is Connie A Baker, C-O-N-N-I-E, A B-A-K-E-R.com. Uh, you can follow me on my Facebook page, which is Connie A. Baker. And also I have a group on Facebook that is free. I would I want to extend a personal invitation. to to you ladies listening. Um, It's called Overcoming Religious Abuse Community, and I've got uh, upwards of 600 members in that group now, and it's a supportive, safe, beautiful place. So those are ways you can contact me. I'd love to hear from you uh, if you have any comments or questions about this uh, topic or about this talk, and I'm just really happy to be with you here today.